Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. You did. You didn't have a, most people didn't out in the country, they didn't have a mortuary, they didn't have a place, so they would place, and that's where people would remember your loved one. And death was a part of life. You had to kill to eat. Today, it happens behind a closed door. And we're not as in touch with that. And you know, more than any other culture, uh, people will say today, more than any other culture, sociologists will say, we are less equipped for death and suffering than any other period in human history. 
because our culture doesn't prepare. So when little things happen, when little inconveniences get in our way, what happens? Everyone kind of blows up. (laughs) We're yelling and screaming at each other over minor little inconveniences because we don't know how to deal with the suffering, the challenge in life. The writer of Ecclesiastes, it's difficult, but he's gonna take us there. You guys ready to wait in? Get your boots on. It's kind of tough, but it's going to be good. So we're going to be Ecclesiastes chapter 9. If you want to get it, uh, grab a Bible in front of you, or you can turn it on. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 down. We're going to read down to verse 12, but we're going to go through the whole, the whole chapter. Bless you. We're interactive here. You've got to watch out. So Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 1. But all this I laid to heart... Examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds, they're in the hands of God. Now, whether there is love or hate, man does not know, meaning after him, man does not know, but both are before him. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and it happens to the wicked and to the good and to the evil, to the clean, to the unclean, to him who sacrifices, to him who does not sacrifice. As the one good, as the good one is, so the sinner. And he who swears, as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil, and all that is done under the sun. That the same event happens to all. Also, here's another evil. The hearts, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living still has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. So notice their love, their hate, their envy, it's already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. And so, go and eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not your oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because this is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time like fish that are taken in an evil net, like a bird that's caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. And this, too, is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Father, would you meet us here as we go through this challenging word? A word, Father, that if we'd be honest, we'd rather watch Netflix, we'd rather be doing something else than thinking of the day of death. It's something we avoid, Father. It's something we don't want to meditate on. We don't want to think about. And often, we avoid it to our own peril because there's an opportunity in life to change, to enjoy, to worship, to savor. And so would you teach us, show us who you are, and Father, in seeing you for who you are, change us 
more and more into the likeness, the image of Jesus Christ. Help us, help us, help us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Not easy, would you say? Challenging words. Better is a living dog than a majestic rotting lion. You know, he's capturing the essence of what it means to be alive, what matters. And so often in life, I think we get caught up in what shines. I mean, certainly I do, what glimmers. What gains you a little respect and admiration from others. And we put all this energy. Notice their loves, their hates, their envies, they're all gone. All the things you worried about. One day they're not going to matter, which means they may not matter today to some degree. Some of the things that we're so concerned about, some of the things that keep us up at night. I mean, think of the stuff you worry about. The stuff that really weighs on your heart, that brings stress and in many ways keeps you from enjoying what is really good about life. Think about those things. What are they? And in light of the fact that death is coming, does it, do they really matter? And where is meaning in life found? See, what the writer Ecclesiastes is doing, he's not, not trying to depress us for depressing us sake. He's trying to wake us up. And he's describing life under the sun, which means life in a world that's broken by sin. That God created this world good. And listen, every longing, desire, emotion you have, it's been created by God. And it has a good attachment. This world, Christians believe this world is incredibly good. We don't abandon the world. We don't cast the world aside, but it's not God. And the difference between a non-believer and a Christian is we don't worship what God has given us, even as good as relationships are and kids are and money and success. We don't set our heart on that. See, the moment you start worshiping what God has created, it becomes a trap and a snare. It's no longer an experience of joy. But when we put the Father at the center of things, he allows us to joy the good gifts he's given us even when life is difficult. And that's what he's describing. So let's, let's jump back into it. I promise you there'll be some light moments in this. It's not all just heavy and darkness and gloom. We'll get to the Broncos and you'll be happy, so don't worry. He says in verse one, but all this, he's talking about this experience he's had as he's looking out at life. I've examined how the righteous and the wise and their deeds. Now notice, this is a little bit of hope is in the hands of God. Nothing touches us that doesn't pass through the hands of God. Now, that can be a comfort if you know who God is, or it can be incredibly frightening. You know, Paul said, you know, I can do all things, you know, through Christ who gives me strength, I can have contentment. But he also said in this life, you know, weaknesses are not necessarily a bad thing. Because see, weaknesses give us an opportunity to discover that God's grace is sufficient. And his power is perfected in my weakness, that I don't have to be this independent, I got it all together kind of human being. I can be the human being who's dependent upon my creator, and when life is broken, I find his strength renews me. And if you know that's true, and you have seen people walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but they don't arrogantly not fear evil, they don't fear evil because they have joy. And you wonder, how can you have joy in the midst of a valley? That just doesn't make sense because they know the one who has control over the valley. And they're not relying on themselves to control what's coming next, right? 
but they trust that all things go through the hands of a good and generous God. And that's what he's beginning to describe. Now, listen, the writer of Ecclesiastes, he doesn't talk a lot about heaven or the afterlife. Instead, he talks about things really from the vantage point of under the sun, and he's looking at it life, and he's saying what's fair, what's unfair. And he's not necessarily describing what's coming next. He's just describing what he experiences today. Because he says whether love or hate is coming next, we don't know. Both are before him, that the author has this very big view of God. And he goes on in verse two and he says, it's the same for all. Every person's gonna go down the same path, whether the rich or the poor, since the same event happens to the righteous, the wicked, notice the good, the evil, he's covering it all, the clean, the unclean, to him who sacrificed, the guy that doesn't care, to the good one, so the sinner, he swears, he doesn't swear, doesn't matter. We're not guaranteed tomorrow, that's the idea. There is a certainty that certainty may be today, but just because today is success doesn't mean that Tuesday at three isn't gonna change the entire story. Have you had a week like that? Where Tuesday at three changed the entire story and it felt like Monday was a year ago because I wish I didn't know now what I didn't know then. (laughs) Sorry. Look, Anyways, it's a country song, I know. Some of you, when you got ADD, you gotta just, Keep up, keep up. I know, it's, it's, it's not helpful. You know that song by Toby, is it Toby Keith? I wish I didn't know that. Sorry, I shouldn't sing. Anyways, and that's what he's saying. He's saying the future, no matter what wisdom you have, the future isn't certain. So what I did this week is I looked up a number of predictions about the future in the past, and here's just kind of help you, that no matter how wise you are, how much intelligence you have in a certain field, we just don't know what's coming. This guy, this, this journalist from 1893, Henry Brown said, law over the next century, listen, will be simplified. Lawyers will diminish, their fees will be vastly curtailed. That's our life. John Foster Dulles of Washington, D.C. airport fame, 1954 Secretary of State for Eisenhower said, listen, the Japanese don't make anything that anyone in the U.S. wants. $120 billion later, I think we do. 19, this is hilarious, 1959 Postmaster General under Eisenhower, Arthur Summerfield, you all know Arthur, before man reaches the moon, your mail will be delivered to you, and this is really funny in Evergreen, your man will be, mail will be delivered to you within hours from New York to Australia by guided missiles. <laughs> I'd like to hear this one. We stand on the threshold of rocket mail. Honey, what's that sound? It's the mail. <laughs> it's coming on a rocket. <laughs> These are bright people. Experts in their field, Bob Metcalf, MIT grad, man who co-invented the Ethernet, founded the company 3M, 1995. That wasn't that long ago. He predicted the internet will go spectacularly supernova. And in 1996, it's going to fall in catastrophic collapse. These are the brightest. And just the reality is we don't know what tomorrow will hold. Now, we get this illusion because we've controlled a little bit of tomorrows that we start to think we hold all the tomorrows. You know what I mean? I'm starting to figure out life. I've gotten a little success. I got a little wealth. I'm doing better than someone else. And what happens is it starts to fool us to think that we're in control. The writer Ecclesiastes throughout this whole book, he's just saying, guys, listen, you're not in control. You need to open your eyes. You're not in control. You're not as powerful as you think you are. 
You're not as smart as you think you are because you can't determine what's gonna happen tomorrow. You can retire at 35 with all the money in the world, but that doesn't guarantee 36. Do you hear what he's saying? And he's waking us up not to be depressed, but to enjoy what we really have and to savor these gifts as gifts from God. So let's jump down to verse 11. Because just as the future is unpredictable, the, the story is so is my life. So is my life. So is my life. Again, I saw that under the sun, notice the race is not to the swift, the battle to the strong, the bread to the wise, riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to us all. The smartest, the fastest don't always win. Now, do they win most of the time? Yeah. But bookies always win in the end. I mean, I keep noticing all these gambling, I guess, apps and ads as I'm watching my Red Sox. They're doing all right. Doing all right. If any Houston fans in here, we love you. There's grace. But you've got to come over to the other side anyways. You guys probably don't care. It's all right. But the point is that bookies win. Why? Because even the sure things are not sure things. And even though you have the fastest, the smartest, the most intelligent, he's just being honest with life. And he's saying, listen, they're going to win. They may win 60% of the time, but the reality is chance and time happen to us, us all. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus' younger brother, James, he captured it this way. He said, listen, you who say today or tomorrow. And how many of us have said this? Today or tomorrow, we're gonna go to this or that city. We're gonna spend a year there, right? We're gonna carry on business and we're gonna make money. And what does he say? Why? Why? You don't even know what's gonna happen tomorrow. What is your life? It's the same thing as Ecclesiastes. You're missed. You're here temporary. You're missed that appears for a little while and vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, meaning there's someone else in control, it's not me, we'll live and do this or that. Now, he's not saying we don't do this or that. He's not saying don't plan, don't save, don't build businesses. No, he's just don't be as arrogant to think that you control the future because see, that allows you to lose sight of where joy is found. When you think you're in control, everything breaks down. But when you recognize that the life you have is a gift from God, and your business is a gift, and your money is a gift, and that challenge you're facing right now is supposed to refine you and make you more like Christ, there's more joy in that than thinking meaning in life is found in what I can control and what I can bring about and who I can manipulate. It doesn't work. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to wake us up. So he says in verse 12, hey, notice this. There's one thing you can count on. For man doesn't know his time like a fish. And I've wondered if this is where Finding Nemo came from. Listen, honestly, I think Pixar, Pixar needs to be brought to like a fish, sorry, that is taken in an evil net. What was his name, Marlon? Poor Marlon. Like a bird that is caught in a snare, so are the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls apart. Isn't that how life is? A little Nemo, a little upset with dad, just goes off, sees a boat. <laughs> He's in somebody's fish tank. But that's life, isn't it, sometimes? There's a bird soaring eagle in the, net, in, in the air, and you, I guess you can't shoot an eagle, but you guys shoot it out of the air. You know, for sport. And yet they're majestic and beautiful, and that's kind of life that we think we can control the outcome. Because maybe we controlled the stock market for a little bit, and maybe we figured out business, and maybe we figured out a little few things, and it kind of lies to us, and we start to think, maybe I am God. Until tomorrow shows up at three, and realize, I can't control this. I'm not greater than this. I'm not greater than cancer. 
I'm not greater in bankruptcy. I'm not greater in broken relationships. I can't solve it. I heard this story this week, and I don't know if it applies, but it made me laugh. There's a story about this CEO, and they're going back to his um, wife's hometown. Visitor parents, right? See the folks. Maybe it's Thanksgiving. Let's say it was. And they're driving into town. They got to go get some gas. So he pulls his nice sports car, gets, goes to the pump. He starts filling it up. And his wife gets out, and she goes inside, you know. And then she's talking to one of the gas station attendants. And she comes back. And he says, well, who, who were you talking to? She goes, you know, that was my high school boyfriend. You know, CEO, he's like, ha, really? You must be glad you married me. She goes, I wasn't thinking that at all. I was thinking if I married him, he'd be a CEO and you'd be the gas station tenant. <laughs> and what's the point? We don't know what influences our future. We think we know. We think we get our arms around it. We think we can control things, but often we got a little bit of success, but a whole lot of deception. Because we think that God either doesn't exist or I'm in control and he's trying to wake us up to the fact that we're not. We're not. And what we're missing out on in thinking we are is joy. We're missing out on joy. So here's the illustration. So he's gonna give us a story because it's always helpful to tell a story to kind of get the point across. So verses 13 through 18, a little parable. And I think it's a true story from his vantage point, but it's somebody that remembers and here's a situation in which this huge army is coming against this little town and this wise old dude figures out a way to beat this great army. So verse 13, watch this. And I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun and it seems so great. Someone should make a movie to me. There was a little city with just a couple men in it. And notice this great king, powerful king, came against it, he besieged it, he built these great siege works against it. But guess what? He forgot he wasn't in control. Because notice what was in the city, this little poor, wise man. And he, by his wisdom, he delivered the city. I wish I knew what happened, but no one, but notice what happened. So here's this great story, right? I mean, awesome. This little dude, probably a little Danny DeVito type. That's what I'm, I'm picturing. And he had some wisdom. They had these siege works. They had thousands of people. He had a couple, 10, 10 dudes, and he overcame. But notice what happened. No one remembered that poor man. Is that true? How many stories of success have been forgotten? How many of you know your great-grandparents, your great-great-grandparents? How do you know what they loved? How do you know what they, they did? You may have a picture, but do you know them? And they had passions and desires. They had hopes. They had dreams. They had it all. And yet he's reminding us that life is fragile. And even the best among us and it reminded me actually of Hamilton. You guys like Hamilton? I try to get this right and I keep forgetting these phrases, but in that there's those, those lines that say, we are outgunned, we are outmanned, we're outnumbered, we're outplanned. We gotta make an all outstand. And what happens? In walks the general, this wise but poor old man. And he rescues the day. And he's telling us that so often we're trying to build a foundation that just doesn't last. You know the Tower of Babel, you heard that story? These people came together. How are we going to be remembered? What do they do? Let's build something no one can forget. Well, often we forget who built it. We got the pyramids. We don't know if Al built that or George. <laughs> who built those things? You don't know. Who is the architect? He's forgotten. Even the great things that are left behind, our name isn't attached to them. And he's just simply saying that no matter what we're investing into, it's forgotten. And see, this is supposed to bring us 
to a place of awareness. So let's jump back in verse two. Here's the one thing that's certain. It's the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous, and he doesn't tell us quite yet what event it is, but I think we know, and the wicked, to the good and the evil, the clean, the unclean, he who sacrifices, he who does not. As the one who is good, so is the sinner, and he who swears as he who does not. And notice he says in verse three, this is an evil. Now he's looking at life under the sun, he's looking at death, and he says, death, there's something evil about death. I'm not exactly sure how he knows that fully, but he's looking at life under the sun and he says the same event takes us all. And I think he's saying that death isn't the way things are supposed to be. Now, I know we wanna believe it's natural, but see, God has placed eternity in our hearts. And for some reason, it really bothers me. I'm gonna die, but Bergen Peak's gonna remain. And my legacy's gonna be forgotten. And maybe two generations down, my kids, they're not gonna tell their grandkids, their grandkids aren't gonna tell their kids. And my name's forgotten, but Bergen Peak is still gonna be there. Looking out over the next view of humanity that's going to come and pass. And it seems as if creation sustains, the sun rises, the sun sets, the waters flow, the oceans never get full, but we pass on. And everything within us cries out. There should be permanence in us. We don't go into death quiet. No, we go fighting. And so he says in verse three, also the hearts of the children of men were full of brokenness and madness while we live. And after that, we go to death. We don't know what is to come. I heard this story this week about this guy named Bobby Leach. Have you heard this? You probably don't know Bobby, but anyways. 1911, Bobby's one of those foolish guys that got one of those barrels and thought it'd be wise to just go off Niagara Falls 175 feet, because that would be cool. That's fun. I guess that was extreme sports back then. That was X Games. Let's go off Niagara. And he survived by spending the next six months in, in a hospital. And so he was known. He was well known. I guess that was a big deal in 1911, because you got a tour. And so he started touring. I guess he's quite famous. And in 1925, he was actually in New Zealand, And here's how this newspaper article read. Years later, at the age of 67, Bobby Leach went on tour with his daughter in Australia, New Zealand, because this is the guy who went over Niagara Falls. But tragedy struck. On April 29th, 1925, while walking on a street in New Zealand, he slipped on an orange peel. Yeah, poor Bobby. And after developing complications, he died. I beat Niagara Falls. Orange peel. That's my obituary. That, but that, I know it's ironic and funny, but it's life, isn't it? I mean, we don't control that, and it's sad. But see, it's supposed to not, not so much cause us to despair of life, but to wake up to what matters. And that's what he's getting to. You know, this week, this, I, read, I was reading in a book, and, and, he, and let me quote this. This is from David Gibson, and he said, he said this. He said, dying people... And hear me on this, dying people who truly know they're dying are among all people the most alive. Dying people who truly know they're dying among all people the most alive. Do you believe that? It means that when you're close to death, you know what most matters to you. And the people that I've been with, one of the privileges of being a pastor, though it's heavy, is being with people who are dying. And I count that a deep, deep privilege because you're being brought into the most intimate experience and moments. And, and I'm awkward too. I mean, I'm like you guys. I don't know. You don't say anything. You just love on them. 
But when you're brought into a moment like that with somebody who, who knows their future is, is short, they know what matters. They got crystal resilience about how they wanna spend their time, certainly those that know the Lord. And I was with somebody this week, actually. I was with somebody this week. And the words of generosity she had towards me, I walked away and just felt, wow. I think I got a glimpse of how we're supposed to live every day. Because see, when you're living in light of death, you live in light of what matters. And you know, people really start to matter to you. You don't take them for granted. The hurts and the pains that you have just don't seem to be as significant. And I get caught up in those hurts and pains. I mean, I'm human, I'm sinful. I got the wickedness in the heart that Ecclesiastes says, that's me. And I need people like that. I need moments like that. I need a book like Ecclesiastes to say, Jason, you gotta wake up, son. You gotta wake up. You're not seeing life clearly. And it's a wake-up call to live life fully, not to be depressed, but to be fully alive. And see, that's what he's gonna go on to say. Let's jump down in verse seven. Let's get to the conclusion. In this world where we're not guaranteed tomorrow, what do we do? Watch what he says. And it seems like a big disconnect, but no, this is exactly where the author of Ecclesiastes wants us to go. He says, go. And this is a command, go. I command you, go eat. Come on, folks. Enjoy your bread. Go to the bread lounge. Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved of what you do, meaning God has already given you gifts to enjoy. I went to King Supers this week, and they had that stash of bell peppers. You know when they put all the bell peppers out and they look pretty? Why do they got the yellow? I mean, God created all things. That's, he's got yellow ones, he's got green ones, we got, we got red ones, we got, how many bell peppers do you really need? Now, some people, I know you cooks tell me they taste different, it tastes the same to me. It's a bell pepper. But what, think about the creativity in life, the beauty of life, the variety in life, you know, when you give something and you've made something for someone and you give it to them, you have tremendous joy when they enjoy it, don't you? We look at a creation and when we enjoy it as an act of worship in gratitude to God, it glorifies him. Because again, God created all your desires, he created your longings. Now, a lot of those longings have been warped by sin and brokenness, but all the things within you are created by God. There are good outcomes to those desires, but we fix them on the wrong things and we start worshiping creation instead of the creator and that sucks joy out of the room because when you worship creation instead of the creator, it leads to envy and envy leads to death and discord and jealousy and fits of rage. Why does that come? Because we're not worshiping the one who is generous to us and so he's describing this picture. Notice what he says. Hey, wear your best, guys. It's hard to wear white in the desert, He's putting on your best. Wear your best. Look good. Enjoy life. Put some oil on you. I mean, it's, it's dry out there in the desert. You stink. Get a little oil under there. Smell good. God has given you gifts because here's the point of Ecclesiastes. Life is not about what you gain. Meaning in life is not about the gain of life because it's gonna be forgotten. If you think the meaning of life is just accumulating wealth, it's gonna be forgotten. If it's a title, it's gonna be forgotten. No, life is about the talents, the gifts, the abilities that allowed you to accumulate that wealth. You should be proud of what you've done. He's gonna get to that in verse 10. But if you're trying to find your significance and identity in that, it's gonna be taken from you. Relationships, they're gonna be taken from you. Anything that you set your heart on as an act of worship can be taken from you but God. And see, when you set your heart on God, he allows you to enjoy all those good gifts that he's given you, to savor 
if you're gonna have lunch today and it's gonna be mac and cheese, just enjoy your mac and cheese. I'm serious, I'm not kidding. That is an act of worship. If that's your lot, if that's what you're getting today, enjoy it. If it's steak, a little wine, a little bread, a little crusty bread, asparagus, enjoy it. Don't look at the guy that has the steak and you know, hate your, anyways, you know what I mean. He's saying, enjoy what you have. Because so often we're trying to control life and find joy and pleasure. We're trying to suck the marrow out of life, but we're missing the opportunities in front of us. Enjoy it. And then notice verse, verse nine, enjoy relationships. If you are too busy to spend time with somebody you love, you're too, you're too darn busy. If work is overriding marriage, that's not work. That's slavery. If money is keeping you from spending time with your kids, I don't know any kid who has complained about their father not giving them a sports car at 16. I heard a lot of kids complain because their father wasn't there on their 16th birthday. You know what teaches you that? Death, right? And it doesn't mean we don't wanna give good gifts to our kids. That's great, that's good, that's, that's right to try to provide for our children. But he's saying there's something that matters more. And so he tells us, enjoy life with your spouse, with your loved one, with those that you care about all the days of your vain. Vain does not mean meaningless, it means passing. He's given you in the sun because this is your portion. This is the time you have, enjoy it. And then verse nine, and this is, I mean, verse 10, this is good. Whatever your hands do, if you work, work with all your heart. Work with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you're going. Now, this is where I have to degree, disagree with Ecclesiastes, because see, he's saying in, in heaven there's not gonna be work. And again, he's describing life under the sun. He's not trying to take us a vantage point beyond. He's just saying, how do we deal with life in a world that's just broken, where people are living for stuff, but in light of death, it doesn't make sense? Because I think in heaven there's gonna be work. You know, and somebody told me, and I, I think, I don't know if you're in this room, but someone said, you know, in heaven you're gonna sing on perfect pitch. I don't think so. Because then we wouldn't enjoy music. I mean, think about it. Why do you enjoy music? Because some people are really good at it and the rest of us are not. And why do you enjoy good architecture? Because some people are great architects and some people are not. And why do you enjoy a good garden? Because some people can cultivate and can grow and they have that gift. That's a part of the image of God in us. I don't think all of us being good at everything is heaven. It seems, seems miserable, doesn't it? Because see, heaven really is a picture of Eden. We're, we're walking with God in relationship to each other, cultivating, having gifts, responsibilities. Now that's the joy of life, that there is joy in work. But what he's describing here, he's not just describing being joyful today. I think it's a picture of the future. See, why do we try to control? Why do we try to find joy in things and kind of put things at the center of our life that can't sustain it because we're, we know we were created for something more? Because see, in verse seven, I, I really believe what he's describing there. If you look at it, he talks about eating and drinking, and then he talks about wearing white. He talks about putting some oil on, clean yourself up. Husband, wife, it's called marriage. There's this image of marriage. And see, the Bible is wrapped up in a marriage ceremony. That throughout scripture, God is reminding us we are his men, bride. And though we have strayed from him, and we have abused him, and we have taken his good gifts and we've made a name for ourselves by building this Tower of Babel out of our money and our talents and our work. What did he do? What did he do? Leave us there? No. 
He descended into our brokenness. He opened our eyes to what really matters. And he took off our robe. You remember that robe, that pig-stained robe with rebellion on it? And he put on a new robe. He put a new ringer on our finger. And he says, you are blameless and pure in my sight. How is that possible? Because the true groom died in our place. He took our place. And through Jesus Christ, we are cleansed. We are redeemed. We have the opportunity to see life again. It's called repentance and faith. It's called new birth. It's renewal. And the beauty of life with God is every day of the opportunity to be renewed. If you're willing to be humble and say, Father, I need you. Man, I need you. I've been successful. You have given me a lot of stuff. I haven't honored you at all. Or I'm hurting in this relationship. I'm hurting over here, Father. I'm trying to do it my way. I'm trying to fix it my way. I need you. I need you to come in. I need you to reform my heart. I need repentance and humility so that, Father, I can enjoy things as you want them to and not be in control of the future, but instead rest in the one who is in control. That's the Christian life. It's not about having it all together. It's about being connected to the one who is together. And out of that, it really helps us to begin to love one another and to glorify him in a way that reflects his beauty and goodness in the world. Church, do you know where that is? That's what he's calling us to to live. That's it. That's the hope of life and is found in Jesus Christ as we rest in him. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you, Father, for the picture of Jesus in the gospels. I mean, how many times do we see Jesus eating and drinking and enjoying and yet he knows the cross is coming. It's not like he's blind. He knows that suffering awaits. He knows there's difficulty, but he also understands the importance of the moment of being present, of enjoying life as a gift from you, the talents, the abilities, our friendships, this community, the sunshine today. And though we're walking at times to the valley of the shadow of death, Father, you are sufficient to give us the grace that we need to overcome the challenges in this moment. And Father, not only just grace, you give us love, wisdom, community, you show up in our lives. And Father, sometimes we are just too busy trying to control the world to see your gifts. So help us today. I pray for each one of us here that if we need to repent and replace and say, Father, forgive me for putting these things at the center of my life. I wanna surrender to you and ask, Father, that you'd teach me to see my children, my wife, my family, my friends, my money, my talents. Even though there's difficulty and hardship and it's, it's there, I don't want it to rob me of truly enjoying, Father, what you've given and seeing all those things as a gift from you. God, guide us into these tr- this truth and help us, Lord, to support each other in, in Jesus' name. Amen.